0: Good morning, Calvary. Welcome back to our Answers Bible Curriculum Sunday School. Missed you guys. Uh, It's good to be back with you. We have our last study in the Old Testament today, and we're considering Malachi's forward look. We looked at Malachi a little bit last time, but now we're looking at what Malachi says about the future. Last time, we heard from Malachi a very striking message to Israel God was telling them, You may be back from exile physically. But you are not back from exile in your hearts. You are merely going through the motions of worship, and you are not pleasing to me. Recall that most of the book of Malachi is set up as a disputation. There's lots of questions and answers going back and forth. And Israel seems amazingly ignorant of its own sin. Israel thought Israel was just fine. God seemed to be the one with a problem. God, why have you stopped loving us? Why aren't you blessing us like you promised to do? Where's our promised restoration? What's wrong with you, God? That's essentially what the Israelites were asking. But again and again, God said to Israel, don't you see yourself? Don't you see your own hypocrisy? Israel, I am being faithful to my covenant. And according to that covenant, you are not going to be blessed. You are going to be cursed. You already are cursed because you are not faithful to my covenant. So truly, returned Israel, Israel returned from exile, was ready to receive all the blessings of God's kingdom restoration, but they were not yet interested in being the holy people God called them to be. One of the blessings, they didn't want the holiness. Now, as Christians today, we can make the same terrible mistake, uh, the mistake in our thinking that we can receive salvation and blessings from God while we still cherish sin We still cherish our idols. We might be just as ignorant about our sinfulness before God as the people of Israel. Which reminds us that we cannot rely simply on how things seem or how things feel or how well things are going, but we have to actually listen to what the Word of God says. That's what's going to show us what our true state is before God. But Malachi had something else to say to Israel. And that's what we're going to look at today, something about the future. Here's our outline for our class. Looking at three promises, mostly from the latter part of Malachi. So Malachi 3, 1 to 7, Malachi three sixteen to chapter 4, verse 4, and then the last two verses of Malachi, Malachi 4, 5, and 6. By the way, I'm using a new camera today, and the quality is better, and uh, we also upgraded our connection, so I can see you better today. So hopefully that'll make it easier for me to pick up if you're raising your hand or something like that, as long as our connection holds up. Let's pray as we go on. God, thank you so much for this opportunity to look back at your word in Malachi. I pray that you'd help me to be able to explain it. Let your word go forth with power, and I pray that you would encourage, convict, and instruct your people. Build up your church. Amen. Okay, let's look at our first promise in Malachi. Well, I'll hold this slide for a second. First, follow us in Malachi from chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. So open your Bibles, please, to Malachi 3, page 952, if you're using the Pew Bible. Remember where we are historically? Malachi is prophesying and is written either during the time of Nehemiah's governorship, perhaps in between his two governorships, or right afterwards, so we're close to around 400, 450 to 400 BC, and this is the last prophet who writes in the Bible. But here we are in Malachi 3. Notice the context before we read. Remember how chapter 2 finished. What aspect of God's character are the people questioning in Malachi 2 verse 17? Go ahead and answer. Exactly. They question God's justice. Where is the God of justice? It can't be more explicit. So we want to keep that in mind as we look at these verses here. So Malachi 3 verses 1 to 7. Actually kind of 1 to to 7b. Follow along as I read. Behold, God says, behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me and the lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight behold he is coming says yahweh of hosts but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of levi and refine them like gold And silver, so that they may present to Yahweh offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to Yahweh, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. Now be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien. And do not fear me, says Yahweh of hosts. For I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statues and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says Yahweh of hosts. And that's where we'll stop our reading. So this is our first section. This is our first promise. Let's make some observations. Notice the announcement in verse one. God says, "I will send my messenger." There's really a play on words here because Malachi's name literally means "my messenger." So God's, so my messenger is announcing that God will send my messenger. Essentially, is what we have here. By the way, the word for messenger, Malach, is the Hebrew word also used for angels. So remember, angel is just the term that means messenger. So. When it says my messenger, it could also be translated my angel. Angels are messengers. Now, notice what this future my messenger will do, this future Malachi. He will clear or prepare the way before me. Now, who's the me? This is God. This is God speaking, so he's going to clear the way before God. And if the messenger is clearing or preparing the way, what does that mean God will do? He's going to come. God himself will come. Now, notice in the second half of verse 1, we have some very striking parallelism. We've got two statements that are said in almost the exact same way. The Lord is set in parallel to the messenger of the covenant. Whom you seek is set in parallel to in whom you delight. And will suddenly come into his temple is set in parallel to is coming. So structurally and logically those statements are very near one another now look at verse two notice it starts with the pronoun his whenever we see a pronoun in the text we want to make sure we know what is its antecedent what is that pronoun standing in for or referring to the messenger of the covenant was the last masculine noun that this pronoun would fit that's our best choice here so the his would be referring to the messenger of the covenant what is the messenger of the covenant's primary task according to verses 2 and 3. What is he going to do? He's going to purify. He's going to purge. He's going to cleanse. It's all about purification. There's lots of purification language. Notice two main metaphors used here. We have a metal worker, or a silversmith, refining metal. So you can do that by intense heat, And you skim off the impurities that bubble to the surface. Or, in the second metaphor, we have a fuller. Fuller is just a wool worker. So a fuller, whenever he's going to clean or process the wool, he pounds it, he stretches it, and he uses a soap, an alkaline mixture, to remove the oil and the dirt impurities in the wool. So he gets nice, clean, bright wool at the end of it. Now notice the questions that come in verse 2. What sense these questions give us about the nature of this messenger's coming purification? When it says, who can stand? Who can endure? What does that indicate about this purification? It's going to be intense. When those questions are asked and they don't have an answer, it's because there's an implied answer. There should be an obvious answer, which is it's going to be hard for anybody to stand. It's going to be an intense, even traumatic purification. Now, notice who specifically is mentioned as going to be purified. The sons of Levi. You'll purify the sons of Levi. Who are the sons of Levi? Priests and the Levites. Those would be the, the line of priests. Remember, we've already heard plenty in this book about the priesthood, and especially how corrupt and faithless it's become. But this priesthood is going to be purified, and what's the result of the priesthood's purification? Right, they will present righteous offerings. Remember, that's an, also been an issue we've seen in Malachi, There offerings of Israel have not been acceptable to God, but now they will become acceptable. They will present righteous offerings, and they will be able to offer on behalf of Israel. Israel's offerings will be pleasing to God. And it says that this will, they will be pleasing, their offerings will, uh, again, be pleasing as in the days of old and as in the former years. Now, it's interesting. We're seeing again here this comparison of Israel in the present or the future and Israel in the past. But... And earlier in Malachi 2, there's a comparison about the priests. It says, you priests are being faithless. You're not doing your job. You're not doing like Levi did in ancient days. He was faithful before me. Now, remember, that term Levi is a little bit odd because Levi himself was never a priest. But the descendants of Levi, there was a faithful line of descendants of Levi that did do what God called them to do as priests or as helpers to the priests. And God rebuked the priests for not being like their forefather, Levi. We have something similar happening here. We have a comparison where he says, you'll be like, once you're purified, you'll be like the days of old and uh, the, the people of former years. But it's not just cleansing and purification of offerings that God is going to accomplish. God says, I will also draw near to you for judgment. I will draw near to you for judgment. God gives examples of the types of people he's going to judge. Sorcerers, adulterers, oath breakers, oppressors of the downtrodden and vulnerable. And at the end of verse 5, what ties all these people together? They do not fear God. They do not fear Yahweh. And then we have a 4 in the beginning of verse 6. These transition words are important to identify in our observations. 4 indicates God's going to give a reason for what he has just declared. And notice the reason God gives in verse six, for I, Yahweh, do not change. And then there's a therefore. So there's a, that means there's a consequence of what God just expressed. Therefore, because I don't change, therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. You're not burned up. You're not destroyed. So this implies if God were changeable, what would have happened to Israel? That's right. He would have wiped them out for their sin. He says, uh, you've always turned aside from the days of your fathers, you've turned aside. So if I did not change or if I did change, I would have wiped you out. You would have deserved to being wiped out because you constantly departed. And notice specifically what it says, what God says they've departed from. They've departed from his law. You don't keep my statutes. From ancient times, you don't keep my statutes. Now, it's interesting here, we have another comparison to the former times, but this time it's the evil forefathers. You're just like your evil forefathers. You're not like your faithful forefathers, you're like your evil forefathers. But God ends this section with a guarantee. Return to me, and I will return to you. And the word for return here is the same word that means repent. In the Old Testament, the word for repent has the idea of return. God says, return, repent, and I will return to you. All right, let's ask some interpretation questions. Our main interpretation issue here is unentangling the identities of those terms used in the beginning in verses 1 and 2. My messenger, the Lord, and the messenger of the covenant. we got to see two different things here. First, we should see that my messenger and the messenger of the covenant, even though they're both called messengers, they're not the same person. My messenger and the messenger of the covenant are not the same. One comes before God comes. The other comes, well, the other's coming is associated with God's coming. One clears the way for God, but the other intensely purifies God's people and priesthood. So the messenger, my messenger, and the messenger of the covenant are not the same. On the flip side, the Lord and the messenger of the covenant are the same where it says the lord and it says messenger of the covenant those are two descriptions of the same person and we can see reason for this their identity their connected identity is seen in the parallel descriptions given about them that's why we have the parallelism in the latter half of verse one the two are described in nearly the same way because they are the same this also makes better sense of the idea that the people of israel delights they are already presently delighting in the messenger of the covenant how could that be if it's just merely a human who's going to come in the future? They don't know him yet, but they do know the Lord. And they supposedly already delight in the Lord slash the messenger of the covenant. Furthermore, logically, if verse the beginning of verse 1 talks about the one who comes before God, and then it ends with God himself is coming, then verse 2 should talk about the coming of God, which is what it does. It's very logical, very straightforward. By the way, you can see this connection between the Lord and the messenger of the covenant in other translations of the Bible more explicitly. The ESV has seen fit to translate those two phrases that that talk about the Lord and the messenger of the covenant with a semicolon in between. So even emphasizing more the parallelness of the ideas expressed. King James Version goes even further. Instead of joining those two descriptions with the word and, it joins it with the word even. So the Lord will come into his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. So it's equating the two two persons. So as most commentators agree, the messenger of the covenant is the Lord. He is the Adonai. He is the master. And if he comes into his temple, then we're talking about God himself. Messenger of the covenant is God. Now, why describe God as the messenger of the covenant? That seems like an odd description. And perhaps it is surprising, though it is emphasizing something about the nature of God's coming, or at least part of the nature of God's coming. God is going to bring further revelation or bring instruction regarding his covenant. Not just talking about A covenant here, we're talking about the covenant, God's covenant. But we should note, this isn't the first time that God has been equated with a messenger, because, as we've said, the word for messenger is angel. And we've seen the angel of the Lord many times in the Old Testament. The messenger of the Lord, who is God, in most instances where that term is used, he's already appeared many times in Israel's history, bringing messages, bringing word from God. So maybe it's not that strange that God is called the messenger of the covenant. By the way, this idea of my messenger preparing the way or clearing the way, this might remind you of some other verses in Isaiah. Can anybody recall them? Isaiah chapter 40. You'll, you'll know it once I quote it for you. That's the one that talks about a voice calls out, make way for the Lord in the wilderness. And, and then it goes on to describe, the Lord is coming. There's a voice calling out though, let's prepare the way for the Lord. God himself is coming. So we're seeing something very similar to what Isaiah has already said. Now let's consider the situation of the return to exiles. They are looking forward to the coming of the Lord. They wanted to see Israel's enemies destroyed. They wanted to see the nation blessed. They wanted to see the kingdom restored, just as the prophets like Isaiah had spoken. However, how does God challenge the people's expectations of his coming in this passage? They surely were looking forward to it. But how is that sentiment challenged here? Yeah, Joe. Right. So the people as a whole are not repentant, not following the Lord, yet they've been looking forward to his coming because they think all this blessing is going to come. But God is clarifying for them, realize that when I'm coming, I'm going to purify you and it's going to be intense. I'm coming to you for judgment. I am coming to purify, but I'm also coming to judge. Yes, Danny. That's a good question, Danny. Is God being sarcastic when he says, in whom you delight? I think that's a worthy interpretation. Certainly, we know Israel as a whole is not delighting in the Lord, but they express that they do. That's why they're asking all these questions like, God, what, what, are, you, what are you saying that we've done wrong? Why don't you accept our sacrifices? This is so strange to us. We love you, God. You don't seem to love us. God says, No, I do love you. You're the one who doesn't love me. So I think you I think you could be right, Danny, but that's just sarcasm there. Rob, you were gonna say something? Yeah, I think that could be part of it, too, that they do, in a sense, delight in God, but it's not the real God, and it's not a true sense of delight. They delight to have God give them all the blessings, but they don't delight to actually follow God. They don't delight in God's law. So certainly there's there's problems in the idea of Israel actually delighting in the Lord in Malachi's time. But certainly they, they think they are. They think they're delighting in the Lord. And they're looking forward to God's coming. They want to see it happen. They're wondering why it hasn't happened yet. And God says, realize what my coming entails. It involves intense purification of you. I'm going to root out. I'm going to be a witness against the sin in Israel. I'm going to purify you. So you can see that all of this is a direct answer to that blasphemous thought in Malachi 2.17. Where is the God of justice? Well, God is highlighting his justice here. I am coming. I am coming in justice. I'm sending my messenger beforehand, and when I come, it won't be to hand out blessings to every son of Jacob. It'll be to purify you and to bear witness who among you really belongs to me. Notice again the reason for all this that God gives. He says, For I don't change. Now, why bring up this idea of God's not changing? Well, certainly there's at least two reasons. One, God is showing My holiness hasn't changed. You're wondering where my justice is? You think that I've just stopped being just? I haven't stopped being just. And here's what I'm going to do to show that. I'm just as holy and just as I ever have been. I will not excuse wickedness. Even among my people, wickedness will receive its recompense. But also, God says, I don't change, therefore you're not consumed. I also am faithful to my own merciful covenant nature so you have hope israel you have hope i'm giving you i'm being patient with you and i'm not going to cast you off utterly i'm going to keep covenant i'm going to uh, though i purify you you will not cease to exist i will restore right worship of me because i'm faithful to my covenant therefore you can return you should repent. There's hope for you. God says, return to me. Return to my law. You've abandoned my statutes. Come back to my word. Look at who I am and look at what I'm going to do and return to me. If you return, you will escape. If you return, I will return to you. Danny, were you going to ask something? Okay, yeah, that's a good question. God's Shekinah glory was in the first temple, but never seemed to appear in the second temple, and maybe Israel was wondering about that, even complaining about that. Why haven't you—why isn't your visible glory dwelling with us again yet? Yeah, maybe that's part of it. Certainly they are are looking for the full restoration, and they haven't seen it yet, and that would be one of those things. But God says— Don't think that I'm being faithless. Don't think, oh, well, I said I'm going to dwell with you, but I'm not really going to. Oh, I will. I am coming to you, but not in the way that you're expecting. Listen to what my other prophets have said. I'm coming to you to purify you because you are not yet a pure people. So yeah, Danny, I think you're right there. So we've seen in this first section of promise, both words of hope, but also words of warning. God says, I am going to to come to you. I am going to accomplish for you restoration, but I'm also going to purify you. I'm going to judge you. And before all that happens, I'm going to send a messenger to clear the way before me. Now, let's look at another promise, another passage where God gives promise. And this is later in Malachi 3. Let's look at Malachi 3.16 to chapter 4, verse 4. Note the context of these verses. Malachi 3.15 again ends with the sentiments of Israel. What is Israel questioning in Malachi 3:15? They're questioning his justice again and more than his justice. They question whether there's any benefit to following God at all. They question his faithfulness. They're calling to um, question God's character. And let's see how God responds. Let's read now verses 16 to, or chapter 3, verse 16 to chapter 4, verse 4. Uh, Yeah, okay. Then those who feared Yahweh spoke to one another, and Yahweh gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear Yahweh and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says Yahweh of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession and I will spare them, as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says Yahweh of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you, who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says Yahweh of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. You may notice some similarities in this passage to the one we just looked at. Let's observe. This section begins by noting that those who feared the Lord react to Malachi's prophecy and react to the indifference of the other Israelites toward God. It says these God-fearers speak to one another, or they spoke to one another. And notice God's reaction. He heard their words, and he wrote a book of remembrance on their behalf. God then gives promises about these people regarding a future day, the day, God says, on which God prepares a possession for himself. are the promises god says i will spare them and they will be mine now if these true god fearers are spared what does this imply about the other people including other jews they're not spared and god clarifies that in the verses that come after he says as a result of what you see i do with these god fearers you will again Note the difference between the righteous and the wicked. You say there's no benefit to being righteous, you're going to see the difference. Because I'm bringing a certain day. God promises a burning day, a day where the arrogant and evildoers are going to be set ablaze. This day is coming. There'll be nothing left of those people. This is a day of judgment. This is a day of total judgment. Verse two gives us another contrast contrasting word with the with the word but and it says unlike the arrogant and the evil who will be utterly consumed burned up on that day those who fear god will experience the healing son of righteousness you can see here we have a, a continuity of theme when it comes to heat fire burning that, that has the idea of heat the wicked they're going to be burned up but the righteous They experience a heat, but it's not a consuming heat, it's a healing heat. The sun rises, the dawn appears, and they are healed, they are restored, they are refreshed. They're not burned up. It's like the sun is coming, it's going to burn some, but it's going to heal others. It's going to heal the righteous. Also, he uses another metaphor here, he says those true god fears, they're going to skip about like calves from the stall, like calves going out of the stall. What does this image convey? your baby cow coming out of the stall how do you feel going out to the pasture this is a an image of joy and freedom and security baby cow doesn't worry about anything just trots out there looking for grass getting out of the stall this is a vision of or this is a metaphor of happiness They're going to be like a baby cow running outside happily and without fear. A calf going out from the stall. That's what's going to be the case for the righteous, God says. And then we have this third image, and it's kind of startling. God tells those true God-fearers, you will tread down the wicked. That's kind of an expression we've heard throughout the Bible, but it's used in a more specific way here. You're going to tread down the wicked. Why is that? What's happened to the wicked? What have they become? they become ashes. That's why you tread them down, because they've become ashes on the ground. And so when you walk around, you are literally treading on the wicked. Because I burned them up, God says. I burned up the wicked. I burned up those who are oppressing you. I burned up the enemies. You walk on their ashes. All of this is coming on the day that the Lord is preparing notice how this section ends remember the law remember my ancient word go back remember my ancient commands and this is a similar ending to our first section in chapter three god rebuked the people for not keeping his statutes and told them to return here again god points the people to his word all right let's talk interpretation again so this whole section is again a response to to the wickedness, the wicked thoughts in Malachi 3.15. God contradicts that thought. God's not just. God's not faithful. There's no benefit in following God. God says, look at the difference. Look at the difference of, w- of what's going to be the destiny of the righteous and of the wicked. I am a just God. Notice again the idea of burning. This day of burning. This idea of a certain day coming. A day of judgment or a day of burning. This is not something unique to Malachi. Malachi is actually drawing on prophetic language used by many of the prophets. This all centers around the idea of the day of the Lord. Now, we're going to see that phrase specifically said in in the latter part of Malachi 4, but this idea of the day of the Lord is something that Malachi is filling in along with the other prophets. Day of the Lord does not necessarily mean a certain 24-hour day. It's a term that refers to a time of judgment. A time of judgment, purification, and restoration. And the various prophets say different things about the day of the Lord. There were different days of the Lord throughout history. There would be a temporal judgment like the fall of Jerusalem. That was the day of the Lord. But the prophets also talked about a future day of the Lord, an eschatological day of the Lord, a day of the Lord that when it comes or when it happens, God himself Will return. God himself will come. This is a future eschatological day of the Lord, the ultimate day of the Lord. On this day, I'm paraphrasing the other prophets here. We've read some of this ourselves, actually, from the other latter prophets. On this final day of the Lord, Israel's enemies would besiege Jerusalem, but they would be destroyed by God. God would rescue his people. And after that day, God will rule himself from Zion the Jews will receive their full covenant blessings and Israel will have dominion over the whole earth. So you can understand why the Jews in Malachi's day have been looking forward to this day of the Lord. All these great things are gonna happen on this final day of the Lord. They were excited for it. But again, God is offering some clarification to this kind of misguided enthusiasm about the day of the Lord. Don't think Israel, the day of the Lord is just for judging your enemies or just for judging the wicked Gentiles. That final day of the Lord includes judgment for you. It includes judgment on the wicked Jews that remain in the nation. Just to give you a sample of this from the other prophets, here's what Zephaniah 2, 1 to 3 says. Zephaniah 2, 1 to 3. God says, believe speaking to Judah here, gather yourselves together. Yes, gather, O nation without shame, before the decree takes effect the day passes like the chaff before the burning anger of yahweh comes upon you before the day of yahweh's anger comes upon you seek the lord all you humble of the earth who have carried out his ordinances seek righteousness seek humility perhaps you will be hidden in the day of yahweh's anger so that was no guarantee it's not like oh we're israel we're safe it says you better seek the lord if you seek the lord perhaps you will be hidden when his day of anger comes. Another section, Zechariah 13 verses eight and nine. Here's what Zechariah said specifically about Israel. Zechariah 13 verses eight to nine. It will come about in all the land, declares Yahweh, that two parts, of it, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but a third will be left in it. So two thirds destroyed, one third will be left. And I will bring the third part through the fire, Refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, Yahweh is my God. Notice language very similar to what we've just read. And then one more, Joel. Joel chapter 2, verses 30 to 31. Again, talking about the final day of the Lord. Here's what it says. Joel 2, verses 30 to 31. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of Yahweh will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as Yahweh has said, even among the survivors whom Yahweh calls. So the day of the Lord is coming on the whole earth, but there will be survivors, even from Israel, a purified remnant. But not all Israel is guaranteed to be part of that remnant. Many, even two-thirds, as Zechariah says, will be destroyed. So Malachi is making the same point as these other prophets. God is telling the people, don't think the day of the Lord has already come, and therefore the kingdom with its blessings is imminent. No, no. The day of the Lord is still coming, and it's coming on the whole world. In that day, you will see God makes a distinction, not between Jew and Gentile, but between those who truly fear him and those who do not, between those who serve him and those who don't, between the truly righteous and between the truly wicked. The righteous will be spared. The wicked will be burned up. What's the point of this? This is a wake-up call to Israel. Wake up, Israel. Return truly to Yahweh, lest you perish in the judgment. Rend your hearts and not your garments, as Joel says. God is being patient and merciful to you. Return while you can. Return before the day of the Lord comes. How sad would it be, Israel, for you to be longing for the day of the Lord, only to perish When it arrives. What does returning to God entail? It means returning to his law. Remember the law of Moses. Those who will be spared, those who will be healed, those who will be made joyful on that day are the ones who reverence and obey the word of God now. While you wait for the day, God says, remember my law. So we've seen the second message from Malachi about God's promised future. Let's look at one more. And this one's the shortest. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Comes right after our passage. Last two verses of Malachi. This one involves Elijah. Look at Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of Yahweh. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. All right, let's observe one more time. God announces that he will send Elijah before the great and terrible day of Yahweh. What made Elijah distinct among the Old Testament prophets? He didn't die. That was one of the main ones. He was taken to heaven in a chariot of fire. He didn't die. But what else was distinctive about him? Yes, Rob. Yeah, that's true. He uniquely despaired because he thought he was the only prophet. He did live in a time of unique apostasy and where not very many other prophets were around. So he did feel like he was all alone. So yes, that's true about Elijah. What else? coming of what? I can't recall Elijah specifically talking about the Messiah. We certainly see Isaiah and other of the prophets who wrote Scripture, they say a lot about the Messiah. Elijah, I'm not recalling any words specifically. He was mainly rebuking worship and sin in Israel. Oh, that's okay. Other things we should remember about Elijah? He had a distinct look. You Remember there's a a verse in I think it's Kings or Chronicles, where he says, I saw this one guy. And he's like, what did he look like? Well, he was a hairy man with a leather belt. And he's like, oh, it's Elijah. <laughs> it's Elijah the Tishbite. So he had a distinctive look. He also had a distinctive location of ministry. Where do we find Elijah most of the time? He's in the wilderness. He's on the run. Remember, Elijah's the prophet on the run, always on the run. So he's usually in the wilderness. And certainly he was a powerful prophet of God. He does does many astounding miracles. God has a just titanic display of power on Mount Carmel with Elijah versus the prophets of Baal. And certainly he went to heaven in a very miraculous way. He didn't die. He was taken to heaven in a chariot of fire. So there's some unique things about Elijah. And God says, I'm going to send Elijah. I'm going to send Elijah. And I note the similarity of this announcement in Malachi 4.5 to what we saw in Malachi 3.1. Before God comes in Malachi 3.1, he said, I'm going to send my messenger. And here it says, before the day of the Lord comes, which the day of the Lord involves the coming of God, God will send Elijah. Now, notice what this coming Elijah will do. He will restore the hearts of the children and the er, the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Now, this is a curious phrase, not used anywhere else in the Old Testament. The book of Malachi has not said anything about problematic relationships between children and parents. Though, there was that word in Malachi, too, about seeking a godly offspring. Kind of odd that we're talking about fathers and children here. Though, we have seen in Malachi, there has been several times a comparison between the descendants of Israel and the forefathers of Israel. God even rebukes Israel for not being like their forefathers, the faithful forefathers. So we do have, though, this phrase about restoring hearts. And notice the effect of this restoration, verse 6. God says, this happens so that I do not smite the land with a curse. Now, it's interesting, it says land here. There's an intimate connection between Israel, the people, and Israel, the land. If you go back to the Torah, go back to the curses of Deuteronomy... It talks about how God will do different things to the land based on what the people do. And God's doing the same here. The word for curse, by the way, can also be translated ban. I don't, I will not put the land under a ban. That's a kind of a loaded term. To be under the ban in Old Testament terms means that you are devoted to destruction. So God says, I'm not, because I'm sending this messenger who's going to do this thing, I will not put the land under the ban. I will not utterly destroy and curse the land. God says, Elijah's coming will prevent me from doing this, to the land and people of Israel. All right, let's interpret. First, are the my messenger of Malachi 3.1 and the Elijah of Malachi 4.5 the same person? We have good reason for saying so. God's coming is connected with the coming of the day of the Lord. So, in a sense, there's a parallel situation for both people who are sent by God. The day of the Lord involves judgment and purification of Israel, which God said he would do in Malachi 3. Before that can happen, God's messenger has to come, just as Elijah has to come first here. Before Israel can be purified, before Israel can be judged, a messenger is going to come, just as it says Elijah is going to come. So, It's very likely that these two were meant by Malachi as the same person. I think the the Jews, in their interpretation of Malachi afterwards, before the time of Christ, they debated whether Elijah and the messenger were the same person, but there's very good reason to say that they are. This passage clarifies the nature of the my messengers clearing the way before Yahweh. How does he do that? He's turning the hearts of the people. He's causing the people's hearts to be restored. This is an important ministry because, as verse 6 says, without this changing of hearts among the people, God would devote the land to destruction. Certainly, Israel didn't deserve their hearts to be restored, to have the people directed back. What does this promised action by God through Elijah reveal about God? God's going to send someone to restore their hearts. What does that show about God? It shows that he's faithfully, kind, and loving towards Israel. He's drawing them back. He's directing them back. Even after all this, he says, I'm going to send a messenger. How many times has God sent prophets in the Old Testament? He says, I'm going to send a messenger. He's going to be there to restore your hearts. Before I come, before the day of the Lord comes, I'm going to send Elijah to you. Now, what specifically does this phrase about fathers and children mean? Well, it could refer to the righteous restoration of broken family relationships. Malachi hasn't really talked about that, but that is one symptom of sin. The people are devoted to idols in their hearts, and as they are practicing wickedness, it is going to hurt the relationship between fathers and children. And Malachi says, or, yeah, Malachi says God's going to restore that. That's possible. It could also refer to the descendants of Israel embracing the faith of their righteous forefathers. So in the sense, the hearts of the fathers, the, the children and the fathers here are not those living together in the time of the coming of Elijah, but the children are those alive at that time, and they're embracing their forefathers. And the forefathers, in a sense, are embracing their children. There actually is a verse in the Old Testament where it talks about how Jacob disowns his descendants. He's like, wow, you guys are so wicked. You're not my kids. And so perhaps that's the idea here, that he, that their forefathers are again owning their children, saying, yes. Those are my kids. They actually have the same kind of faith that, that I did or that I do. Perhaps. It's a little difficult to understand. Either way, though, certainly the sense is that people are going to turn back to righteousness. They're going to turn back to the Lord. And Elijah is going to help accomplish that. So we have this third promise from God. Let's summarize what we've seen today. In response to God's justice and his benefit being blasphemed by the people of Israel, God promises that a burning day of the Lord is coming. God himself will visit his people as the messenger of the covenant. On that day, all the wicked, including the hypocrites in Israel, will be searched out, judged, and consumed. Israel will be pure, will be purged and purified. The truly righteous remnant, however, will be refined and spared. And the day of the Lord will actually result in their vindication, their joy, and their healing. They will be remembered by God. God will keep covenant. And they will experience the benefits of that. They will see God restore Israel and establish his kingdom in righteousness, just as he promised in the other prophets. God will never utterly destroy Israel. And even before the day of God's coming, the day of God's judgment, God will send a messenger to prepare the people and to mercifully direct their hearts back toward God. Now, how is Israel to respond to this message from Malachi, these promises from Malachi? We already saw. God says through Malachi, repent, turn back to God and to his law. Love and serve the Lord truly, keeping his commands as you wait for the unveiling of the day of the Lord. Remember God's law as you wait for God to come. So we see our summary. The big question is now, have these prophecies been fulfilled? Have these promises from Malachi been fulfilled? And the answer is, partly. Partly they have. After Malachi's prophecy, there are 400 years of prophetic silence. No other prophets appear in Israel. No new revelation comes from God to Israel. Though God already gave his scriptures, so the people were hearing God through the already revealed scriptures rather than new words from God. But then, after 400 years, God sent a forerunning messenger, an Elijah, and who do we know him as? John the Baptist. And the New Testament is very explicit about this. Speaking of John, the angel Gabriel told Zacharias in Luke 1, verses 16 to 17. This is Luke 1, verses 16 to 17. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children, there's that word from Malachi, and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That was the word spoken about John the Baptist by the angel Gabriel. John indeed resembled Elijah in spiritual power, in appearance, and in wilderness ministry. And just as Malachi promised, John prepared the way for the messenger of the covenant. And who is that? That's Jesus. That's the God-man, Jesus. Zacharias, John's father, prophesied about John later in Luke. Luke 1, 76-79. Here's what Zacharias said about John. Luke 1, 76-79. A new child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. I think there's a possible allusion to Malachi there. To shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So he says, John the Baptist prepares the people He will prepare the people by giving them the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Jesus spoke to the crowds about John the Baptist in Matthew uh, 11, 10 and 14. Here's what Jesus said. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. That's Malachi 3.1. And Malachi 11, I mean, Matthew 11:14. 14. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah, who was to come. So the gospel writers, are very aware of Malachi's prophecy and showing that John fulfills it. Now, you may ask, why did John deny being Elijah when the Pharisees asked him in John 1, mm-hmm. I won't read that second to you, but John does deny. And they ask him who he is. Are you Elijah, who was to come? He says, no. Why does he do that? Well, this is a little puzzling. The the answer appears to be that the Jews of Jesus' day thought that Elijah himself would literally return. They were expecting the Elijah from the Old Testament. After all, he didn't die, so he can come back. That should be easy enough. John says, I'm not the same Elijah, but I am the forerunner. Because John himself even quotes Isaiah 40 to the, uh, to the Jews and Pharisees who were visiting him. John is the Elijah-like forerunner of the Messiah. He is the My Messenger, though he's not Elijah himself. Now, I said though that these words from Malachi were only partly fulfilled. Because when we look at the ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus, they don't do everything that Malachi prophesied would happen. Or they don't accomplish everything. John the Baptist did prepare the way before God, the way before Jesus, and many did repent. But John was ultimately rejected. He was killed, as was Jesus himself. Jesus, the Messiah, was rejected and killed. Israel is not yet purified. We saw Malachi 3 said, I'm going to purify them. They're going to offer white, uh, their acceptable worship, acceptable worship to me. It hasn't happened. Nor have we seen the final day of the Lord. Those things haven't happened. Nevertheless, those events have been initiated. They've been initiated, according to Malachi's word, by John the Baptist and by Jesus, and they will be fully realized in the future. The Son of God will return. He will come into his temple, and he will purify a remnant of Israel for himself as he judges the whole world. God still has not cast off Israel, perhaps partly due to the ministry of John the Baptist, and God's people must still do, as Malachi indicated. Fear the Lord, keep His word, and wait for the Lord's coming. Now, some interpreters believe that another Elijah is coming before the second coming of Jesus. Before, um, yeah, before the second coming, and let me base this partly off of Matthew 17 verses 10 to 13. Matthew 17 verses 10 to 13. This is right after the vision of the transfiguration, where Peter, James, and John see Elijah and Moses on the mountain with Jesus. And they ask him a question. Peter, James, and John ask Jesus a question. They say, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? So they're referring to the teachings. The scribes know Malachi. They say Elijah's got to come before God does. And he, that's Jesus, answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they wished. So also the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Uh, some interpreters, including many in the early church, understand Jesus' words about Elijah is coming and will restore all things as a future promise. This is another prophecy. An Elijah-like ministry is going to appear again before the second coming. Perhaps Elijah, or an Elijah-like figure, will be one of the two witnesses mentioned in Revelation 11. Perhaps. I'm not sure if we have to understand Jesus' words in that way, though it is possible. It is possible that another Elijah, perhaps even the Old Testament Elijah himself, will finish what John the Baptist started. But certainly, as we've seen with a number of these verses, the New Testament is emphatic that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of what Malachi prophesied in chapters 3 and 4, what we've seen today. It also shows that Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the one John the Baptist prepared the way for. You know, it's interesting when we think about Isaiah 40, or even these verses in Malachi, if you acknowledge that John the Baptist is the forerunner, you have to acknowledge that Jesus is God. Because who is the forerunner preparing the way for? Not for another human, not for a mere angel, but God himself. He's preparing the way of the Lord. So Jesus is God, and certainly Jesus uh, Jesus demonstrated that in his ministry also. So as the Old Testament closes, as the last prophet utters a word about the future, it is a sobering word, saying judgment is coming. But before that happens, before the final day of the Lord, God will send a messenger to turn the people back towards himself. And it would be another 400 years until they saw this prophecy fulfilled, but things were getting nearer and nearer to the plan of redemption moving forward. Well, we have a couple more minutes, so let me talk about application and then maybe we will have time for one or two questions at the end. What does this second part of Malachi have to do with us today? Well, hopefully you see. Truly, we are in the same situation as the returned Jews in Malachi's day. Many Christians, many people in the world They claim to follow the Lord. They claim to worship the Lord, but they don't really. Meanwhile, God's true people, they struggle with holy perseverance. They struggle to keep obeying God. They struggle to keep having hope. So God tells us through Malachi, just as he told Israel, do not forget my faithfulness to my own character. I am holy and just. I will judge the wicked, even among those who claim to follow me even among those who call themselves Christians. Hypocrites who, tr- who do not truly belong to me will be burned up like chaff on the day of my wrath. However, those who take my word to heart, they will be spared. They will be healed on that day. They will skip about like joyful calves when my salvation comes. So for us today, here in America, There is a way of escape from the coming wrath of God in the day of the Lord. God is faithful to his merciful character. Those who repent, who trust in the messenger of the covenant to be their only righteousness, will be cleansed and be made able to stand in the fierce day of the Lord. We are to look forward as God's people, God's true people. We are to look forward to the Lord's coming. Persevering in simple faithfulness to the end. God sees. He's writing. he's writing our actions down in the book of remembrance. He's writing down our our faithfulness to him, which he himself is causing, but he's writing it down. He will reward his own, but he will destroy those who only claim to belong to him. They claim, but they do not actually back up their claims. So let us be sober. Let us be sober lest we, like hard-hearted Israel, look forward to seeing God, look forward to his day while we still haven't repented. Because when we arrive before God, if we still haven't repented and his day comes, we will have the most tragic and traumatic wake up possible. God will tell us, I never knew you. Depart from me into eternal torment, you who practice lawlessness. I pray that is not what God says to any of you. Some questions to think about. Oh, actually, one more statement. God's omniscient judgment is coming. He knows how we truly are. But also his hope of salvation is coming. So let us return to God and his word that we may be saved. Some questions to think about. Number one, do you vainly try to take God's blessings of salvation without a new life of holiness? Number two, when the day of the Lord comes, will you be saved or will you be judged? Don't simply answer based on your feelings. Expose yourself to God's word. Number three, does your life demonstrate that you are patiently and faithfully waiting for the coming of the Lord? New Testament has a lot more to say about Jesus coming back. Are you waiting faithfully? Number five, do you thank, love, and praise Christ For giving you a hiding place in the day of the Lord. That's it for this week. Next week is review. We're going to be looking back at the last 12 lessons that we've done this quarter. And I prepare some review questions for you. So please uh, get ready for that. Also, I'll take some time in our next lesson to answer any questions that you still have. So if you have some questions based on the last 12 lessons, bring those next time. And also, if you have questions about how things are going in California, how seminary is going, I can answer those too. Let's close in prayer. God, we thank you for this word. It's a sober word, but a good word. It is a message of hope to those who belong to you, to those who are faithful. but It is a message of sober warning to those who only pretend to belong to you. God, may we truly delight in you and not just pretend to delight in you. Deliver us from evil, cleanse us from sin so that we will not have to endure the burning day of wrath, but instead can be hidden in that day. that you would accomplish this by your merciful nature. Amen. Thank you, Calvary. See you soon.